This is part one of a two-part podcast. It's counting. Okay, it's, yeah, it's recording. Okay, so we're rec- we, we just finished watching Gabe Brown talk about polycultures and stuff like that. There's a little 58-minute video on YouTube, and there's six of us here. Uh, I think we lost a couple of people. I think there was eight of us that watched it, maybe, and now there's six of us left over. Am I right? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Who cares? But I want to, let's go around the room and find out who all's here. Sarah. Sean. Janet. Kai. Fred. All right. Uh, and um, before we start, there is a point that I want to make because um, I think one of the things that we're about to see is gardening done on a 5,000 acre scale. And, um, but I, I, I want to say something that's based on something that I read recently. We've had a lot of discussion on permies in the last month, maybe month and a half, about invasives and native plants and things like that. And a lot of the people that are anti-non-native plant, I mean, you know, it's it's. I, I want to make it clear that they're anti-non-native plant because I think both sides are for native plants, but there's only one side that's like, yeah, turn that fucking watch off. (laughs) There's only one side that's kind of like against something. There's only one side that's a plant bigot. That's like they're against certain species of plants. Now, the one thing, they've got a kind of a mixed message, and we've talked about native plant stuff in this podcast before, but uh, they got kind of a mixed message. One thing is, is that, uh, natives are best for this area. They, they're most optimized. And yet, mysteriously, there are these non-native plants that they call invasives. And they're worried that they'll, uh, do so well in the area that they'll wipe out the native population. Just as things have been happening for millennia. Uh, but, okay, fair enough. It's, it's, it's okay to want things. And so they can, they can want that. Of course, the problem comes when they expect the rest of us to live by that standard. And I kind of feel like as permaculturalists, what we're trying to do is is to create something that compares to um, like a, a monocrop wheat field, which is a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. But for a few scenarios, they talk about like, here's a place where a non-native is totally taken over. And the, and the one that we've d- talked about uh, the most, the one that's been our poster child, has been the Russian olive. And so I can see a lot of places where things are super, super dry and there's no water anywhere and a Russian olive somehow makes a go of it and I don't see anything else trying. And um, uh, then there's places where there is water and you can see like hundreds of Russian olives making a go of it. Um, and now the people that are working on making laws against the Russian olive as if that will really change much of anything. But I guess what you end up with with this law is that you cannot sell a Russian olive tree or sell Russian olive seeds. Um, so that would, you know, it, it kind of seems like, well, but yeah, but the Russian olive is like the only thing that seems to do well in these really dry climates. Um, they're worried that you're going to plant it next to a creek or something like that. And um, now I... I the argument, the further argument that's made is not only does the Russian olive go in there and totally take over, and I argue that there was nothing there to begin with, but okay, fair enough, something else may have been growing there, and the Russian olive came in and, um, you know, started to do extremely well. And um, 
next thing you know, there's kind of like a little forest of Russian olive trees. I believe, and I think there's many schools of thought on how to solve this problem, but um, I believe the best solution is is to plant a permi there. And, of course, a permi is not going to want to have just Russian olives, and so it's probably going to cut quite a few of them down and use them in hugel culture. My understanding is that a Russian olive is extremely good in a hugel culture. Um, it's also great firewood. It's it's apparently great for a lot of things. It's a very multifunctional thing. It, it does provide berries, edible berries, um, and um, it's also a nitrogen fixer. So it's this really awesome plant. Now, I've heard from the people that are anti-non-natives. I know that sounds like a double negative, but, um, you know... It's the, the the double negative is the truth and the other is not. So they're anti-non-native. They're native bigots is is what they are. So anyway, the, what the native bigots are shooting for, uh, or what they're what they're saying is that um, there'll be such a seed bed down there. They'll that the Russian olives put so many seeds in that area that it'll be almost impossible to grow anything but Russian olives. And I kind of think I. Th- I think that their logic is absolutely true from the perspective of a modern-day forester, where you have one person who manages 20,000 acres. On the other hand, if you've got one person managing, say, three acres, then I don't think it's going to be much of a problem. I mean, um, first of all, there's there has been the invention of a chainsaw, but before that there was the axe, um, the, uh, the, the Russian olive does not run from you as you chase it with the axe. Uh, it holds very still and is very patient as you chop it down. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, and it's got so much useful wood in it that uh, it's like, you know, if your mission is to take it down, great. I think I think that if you've got somebody there who is gardening that area, then I think that the problem will go away. And I think that these areas are not all over the place. These are in just a few areas. So all they need to do is open themselves up to allowing a a permaculture gardener there, and that will solve the problem. And I think that's the case for a lot of the invasives. Um, uh, We have knapweed here is our primary invasive that is um, a plant that we don't care for. And I've heard that knapweed has been brought into the United States to be a medicinal. Um, So it's an introduced species. It's an intentionally introduced species. Um. And then in a previous podcast, we talked about the potential uh, use of knapweed. And uh, I think uh, in the last week or two, um, uh, uh, at least two of you, I think um, Fred and Sarah, uh, plucked up a fair bit of knapweed, and it went inside the compost pile for making our hot water. Um, So it's going to serve that function. (laughs) But Arrakis was when I originally arrived it was one giant knapweed field. It was solid knapweed. So anyway, all I wanted to do is as as we started this, it, what we saw reminded me of this that a lot of the problems that people complain about are because it's like we've got one person managing 20,000 acres and it's becoming unwieldy. If they go and they eliminate all of these Somebody else might plant one nearby and the seeds will blow in and they'll be right back where they started from. And I just kind of think that, um, and, and usually the solution is pesticides is what they end up going with because, um, that's part B of nearly every, 
uh, plant bigotry program is the pesticides. Uh, all right. I want to, I've, I've said my thing. I'm setting it aside. Um, this Gabe Brown stuff, uh, I, I wanted to watch it and record a podcast because there were a couple of points in here that I thought were extremely profound. Um, mostly because, um, he has pictures. He has proof. So it's, uh, um, and in fact, I think at one point we, I, I mentioned, uh, my, my old, uh, carrot explanation, the, uh, the things about the carrots and the mycelium and the monocrops from podcasts in the past. Um, and so, um, we've talked about polycultures and things in the past, but this is, this has got a few extremely profound points, including, uh, a lot of, uh, hard numbers. And so I wanted to make sure to share these. How how old is this video? It's just uh, less than a year old, I think, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure, but I was going to say maybe we should say the exact name of the video we watched so people could find it. Um, it's called Keys to Building a Healthy Soil, Permaculture and Polyculture by Gabe Brown. Oh, it had the word permaculture in it. Oh, Awesome. Because he was, I mean, basically he talked a lot about it, it all boils down to the carbon in the soil. And so I thought, oh, he's about to give us the carbon farming pitch. But he didn't. He just said carbon in the soil, the end. And then it ended. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, Gabe Brown is the man. Uh, he's in North Dakota, I believe. Yeah, Bismarck. Oh, Bismarck. Okay. And uh, he said at some point, like, his land is now inside of the Bismarck city limits. Mm-hmm. 5,000 acres is a lot. <laughs> I wonder if he gets to pay taxes at the city rate. You know, that would be brutal, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, uh, I kinda, you kind of get the impression he doesn't care because a lot of the video he talks about profit and the amount of money he's making per acre. And you, you kind of get the impression that he's like, of all of the farmers and all of uh, his county, he's doing the best. Um, and it's because he doesn't use any fertilizers. He doesn't use any pesticides. He doesn't use any GMO stuff. He, he, till. he, he doesn't till. Um, although that piece of, uh, that, that, uh, no till drill that he has, that looks like a half million dollar drill to me. That looks like an extremely expensive piece of equipment. Um, and I kind of get the impression like he loves that piece of equipment. And and, and, and a part of the time when I'm watching this, I'm kind of thinking like he must be spending a huge amount of time thinking, what else can I put in this? Because I love my no-till drill. So you had something, Sean? Yeah, um, he made the point that he takes absolutely no government subsidies at all. Uh, yeah, he also, I think, included the word anymore. <laughs> yeah. So that's implying that at one point he may have, but now he's like, and and part of it is is because you know the the government programs are probably going to say like, well, where's your roundup? I mean, we gave you this, we're giving you this money because you're supposed to give it to Monsanto, and you missed that step, mm-hmm. and we made the money because we're actually part of Man- Monsanto, uh, not technically. I mean, um, but, you know, that gets into politics a bit, so. <clears throat> he also said he doesn't buy crop insurance. Right, and he doesn't use bankers anymore, and he kind of giggled about that. <laughs> bankers. <laughs> so, um, I, 
I thought there's oh, there's a lot to go into. Um, he points out that, uh, and, and this I didn't understand. It must not have been his land, but he starts off showing forest soil, and it's four point three percent organic matter. And then he shows here's what it looks like after seventeen years of till, and it's. 1.6% organic matter. Now, the, at 4.3% organic matter, it looks pretty dark in color. It looks like soil. And then the 1.6% uh, organic matter, it looked like a block of clay to me. Um, so it, it looked like it wasn't going to have any air in it. Uh, it looked like it would repel water pretty thoroughly. Um, so I, I didn't quite understand what the story was there. I got that it was 17 years of till, but is it not his land? I, I think it was someone else's land, and he just didn't have those images from his own land, what the soil looked like when he started. Because when he started farming his land, it was it had been tilled, and so it was like a compacted wasteland. And now it doesn't look that way, so he can't show you the, the compacted soil from his land because he doesn't have it. Okay, all right. So so basically what, he, what he's done is he's gotten it from someplace else, and he's showing it to people so he can say, <laughs> you suck! Like that? Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much it. All right. But, uh, that was, that was a profound image. Um, it sounds like a big part of what he started with was no till. He wanted to just get to the point of, of not tilling. Hence the great pride of his no till drill. And, uh, so, I don't know. It came back to that over and over and over again, saying no-till, no-till, no-till. And I know there was a big no-till movement, but it seems like what he moved towards was not only that, but also polyculture. And, in fact, the, the polyculture stuff, I think, was the most profound stuff. I mean, no-till stuff's been around for 20, 25, 30 years or more. I think he said that he was not chilling since 1970. Anybody hear that? Well, it's kind of... I bought this land in 1991, and then somehow, yeah, ever since 1983, and then there was something about 1973, and and I'm kind of like, and then he's like, well, my place is 2,000 acres, and then later it's 5,000 acres, and so I'm kind of, you know, but hey, maybe it's like different properties, like this property, okay. I have... 822 properties, and this one has been since 1991, and that one's been since 1983. Maybe it's kind of like that. He, he did say, I don't know how many fields there are when they're talking about different fields amongst his 2,000 or 5,000 acres. So he, it sounds like he might have them in different areas. So now, when I was growing up, I worked on a lot of different ranches, and... Um, it was like not even a checkerboard pattern that they would that these ranches would own. I, like I I worked um, harvesting peas and wheat um, for one ranch, the B L Davis Ranch in the northeastern corner of Oregon, and um, sometimes it would take us two hours to move the combines from one field to the next field over because the next field over was miles away, mm. and the combines had a top speed of about three miles per hour. <laughs> So um, I, I imagine that he's probably in a similar situation. He's got lots and lots of fields, but they're really spread out. So, and yeah, because you, you kind of think a lot of these people, there are places where it's like we own 
a million acres and it's all pretty contiguous, but that's pretty rare. All right. Um, mycorrhizal fungi, symbiotic relationship with the soil and plants. And so this is kind of like the thing I talk about in the carrot thing. But he went into a lot of detail about the kinds of symbiotic relationships and um, and how they exchange water as well as nutrients. Um, and it sounded like with this symbiotic relationship, then the plants did not need nearly as much water. So by having the symbiotic relationship, the plants consumed less water. That's what I think he said. Not not that they consume less water, but they, their root system is extended by the length of the hyphae of the mycorrhizal fungus in the soil. So that fungus is drawing water to the plant from much further than the plant's roots can reach. So okay. they make better, more efficient use of the water that's in the soil. Right. And then they might also be able to go deeper. Mm-hmm. But then we also talked about, and he talked about a lot of, um, I keep wanting to say soil structure, but... He talked about soil aggregates, which when I did my um, master gardener training, then and then even before the master gardener training, when I was obsessed with reading gardening books, it seemed like a, a lot of the gardening books were focused on soil structure. And when you till, you destroy soil structure. And I, to me, and then when he would hold up a, a, a glob of like, this is great soil. And then, but it didn't have the aggregate they kept talking about, which he mentioned as black cottage cheese. This having this awesome aggregate makes it look like black cottage cheese, and he had some examples of that. And it's like, yeah, that does it looks like black cottage cheese. Um, but what the pieces that he showed, like this is such great soil, and it had a bunch of earthworms in it and stuff. It was like a big dirt clod that was about the size of a softball, and uh, lots of worms in it, lots of things going in and out, lots of little holes, but it was one contiguous piece. And that is what I think of when I think of good soil structure. When you have good soil structure, you have a huge network of earthworm trails going all kinds of crazy directions all over the place, down to really deep, up to the top of the surface. And you're going to have trails like like the earthworm trails of little bugs or little tiny things. And then there's going to be all kinds of different adventures going on through there that are made by not only the, the, the fungi, but all kinds of different things. And so, but the older it gets, the more soil structure you get and the, um, the, the higher the quality. Now, um, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, like Mark Vandermeer, uh, Helen Atow, uh, so many other people that I talk to about soil, it's all about the soil aggregates. And that's where you get the black cottage cheese. So I was, I don't know, maybe, is having a lot of soil aggregates, um, is that good soil structure? I, I think it is. But it also looks like, well, black cottage cheese. Like if you drove a big vehicle across it, it would smush it. Whereas with good soil structure, it wouldn't smush. I think. All right. Uh, what did what did you guys when it comes to soil aggregates and soil structure and stuff like that? What did you guys get out of the video? Who's got something? There was a there was a part that he did say about the soil aggregates when 
he was talking about water infiltration and all the water that comes into his field and his neighbor had a had a pond where he tilled but on Gabe Brown's property it had all infiltrated and after that they said that he, he could just drive a tractor right over it and it wouldn't compact it at all so wouldn't I, make rats yeah so i think that the soil aggregates are are not compactable as as much as they might seem i guess because it, it, they might not be as compactable as actual cottage cheese <laughs> <laughs> the white kind <laughs> so um as it's true i mean he was showing pictures of like look at these soil aggregates at the same time he's talking about like getting that enormous rainfall all at once and and then the experts are all saying like you could drive any kind of big equipment there and it wouldn't rut you wouldn't get stuck and things like that and, and uh so and then i keep every time he keeps saying look at these great soil aggregates and it's all about the soil aggregates i kept thinking soil structure he was saying that the soil aggregates are um, made. The mycorrhizae fungus forms a glomulin, 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 a soil glue, basically. But when when you till, it kills the soil mycorrhizae. It kills all those fungi because it exposes them to the sun and the air, you know they dry out. And so um, every time you till, you lose thirty percent of your organic matter. So that does not mean that if you till three and a third times, it's 100% gone. <laughs> it's it's 30% of what's there. So it's uh, it's an asymptotic curve. Well, I, th- I think what you're talking about is because you're adding so much oxygen to the soil that it speeds up the the bacteria that are, or the processes that are breaking down the organic matter. So then it just it. Well, this is kind of like the the upside of till. So the beautiful, delicious upside of till is you go in there and you, you you till the soil and then you get a whole bunch of air in the soil, which, you know, is is a big turn on for the microbials that are already there that survived the tilling process. Then there's all the, the dead bodies of the ones that didn't survive the tilling process, which happen to make good plant food. And so then you go and you plant stuff in this freshly tilled soil. There's lots of air. There's lots of plant food. And then the plants are like, man, this is awesome. I can move my roots through this so easy. This is nice. So that's where people kind of get the idea of, you know what I want to do? I want to till. And then I'm going to reap the benefits that come from till. And if I make the soil really terrible, well, maybe I'll just, you know, augment it next year. And that'll, you know, undo the damage that I caused. And maybe I'll even add a little bit more and I'll make it even better than before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So only next year comes around and they forget to do that step. And maybe they could substitute some of it with like fertilizers and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a vicious, vicious death spiral. It is. Um, the synthetic fertilizers end up killing the, the fungi. And the fungi, not only are you going to lose... Uh, the nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur with the tilling, but you're also the mycorrhizal fungi. When it dies, then the 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 mycorrhizal fungi. I'm sorry, actually um, increases the efficiency that the plant 
can consume the nutrients. So you're getting a double whammy. You've lost a lot of nutrients by um, just released into the air, and because you killed the fungi, then it's not allowing the plant to be efficient. So I think I think what you just said is what Fred told me, nah, and and I think you said yaha, and something like that. Is that so? No, am I? Am I? Maybe I I'm missing. You go up. Both are shaking your head like I'm nuts. I think we're talking about two sides of the same coin. So here's because I think I, I get the thing about how there's more reach, and that you know because I, the the fungi dance is all about like being able to bring stuff to the plant to trade for sugar, and so the the fungi doesn't have leaves of its own, so it needs a symbiotic relationship with the plant to get that delicious delicious sugar. And and so it's got all these, and then of course the medium in which trade happens is with water. Water carries the the nutrients from one and the sugars from the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I got the impression that he said that the plants themselves become more efficient, not just in the the greater reach, but they just it's like they just don't need as much water. Well, those those fungi are not only transferring water; they're actually transferring nutrients too, because they have. They excrete enzymes, which can yeah. dissolve those in the soil. So it's not just a water transfer. They're they're bringing all kinds of things to trade now, for sugar. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yep. I, which I covered my carrot thing that I do. But now the, uh, uh, the I think the thing that Janet just said, and maybe I was like, and, you know, I got to point out, I'm still on that weird medication that's supposed to make me stupid. So um, I'm I'm dizzy and loopy and. <laughs> But, okay, so I believe you said, and I could be wrong, is that it's not only, you know, the stuff that Fred said, but I thought I heard the guy say that the plants need less water. Like, like the amount that they actually drink is less because, I don't know, because of reasons. <laughs> it's, it's like the, it's like before they needed five gallons of water, but now they only need two. Because they've got a special friend, not because the special friend is bringing them more. They just like they're in love, and uh, when you're in love, you just don't need as much water. Maybe I, I thought I heard him say something like that, but I could be wrong. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what he said. In addition to needing less water, they're also able to, um, for lack of a better word, digest more minerals and nutrients that they need, thus making it taste even better. Oh yeah, the taste even better thing I think definitely comes with the polyculture package. And he he didn't really say that, and but that but that's what I always say when I do the carrot speech. So and I'm assuming everybody here knows about the carrot speech and yeah, but right. Fred, you wanted to add something? Oh, oh, I think he was talking about like crop residues being left on the on the soil and that reducing the amount of water that your plant needs, um, because it affects soil temperature. That's just mulching. I mean. I, 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 maybe there was a lot of things that he was saying and I was like, I was filling in some blanks and now of course Janet says I'm absolutely right. So screw you, Fred. So, um, absolutely. She used the word absolutely. And so is Fred. Fred is also absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, now, granted, there's there's a mulching effect that's going on with the way that he's doing uh, a lot of crop residue kinds of things. But I I think that he wasn't talking about. I mean, there there is some issue like how much water can the soil hold, and he goes into that. We're going to get to that in a little bit. 
But then there's also how much water does the plant consume? And then there's some super fascinating stuff coming up about polycultures and uh, the symbiotic relationship in plants. And it was, I'm not even sure if it was like an old soil or a new soil, but we're coming to that as well. Um, but I thought he said, and maybe it's just my wishful thinking, even though Janet seems to be supporting me uh, absolutely, uh, and that is that just their general need for water is reduced. And, and granted, there's going to be the roots of the other plants. Some of them are able to get water more efficiently than others. And then there's going to be the fungus itself that's able to, you know, go and get water from other places as well as other nutrients from the soil that the plants are not as readily able to go and collect for themselves. Um, and then there's the effect of the mulch. And then we're going to get into the, I want to get into some stuff a little in a little bit about, you know, how much solar stuff does each plant need and the needs of, uh, I mean, some plants don't need a lot of water. Some plants don't need as much water as others, but <clears throat> okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and drop this for now. I'm going to drop it and we are going to come back to it because there is a way amazing thing that happens in this video. That's just super profound. Uh, the next note I have is um, with the mycorrhizal fungi, it protects the host plants from pathogens and nematodes. I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but that was something that was really profound, and I wrote that down. So basically, your plants are going to be healthier in, when, when there's mycorrhiza present, that they're going to contribute to greater plant health. Now, that just might be because it's bringing more nutrients in, and with more nutrients, the plant has, you know, is, is a stronger plant. But um, you could also say the same thing for, um, you know, pests. You know, a, a, a strong, healthy plant just does not attract a lot of pests. Um, it's usually the plants that are sad and dying that are, you know, attract the pests because they're going to be easy prey. I think that it's probably also somewhat of a physical thing in that the mycorrhizae is in the roots of the plant. Right. So it's taking up that space also and... It's it's possibly producing certain chemicals that would say, you know, this is my plant. I'm attached to it. I don't want you bad guys coming and beating up my plant that I'm getting all this nice cookies from. So maybe it's <laughs> it's in a way kind of acting like white blood cells in a human being. But it's kind of like I'm growing inside this plant. And if I see anybody here that I don't like, I will kick them in the nuts because they would be screwing up my show while I'm here. Now, one of the things that you, Kai, have planted, I believe you've planted, is that Max-Q grass. Is that right? You've yes. planted a bunch of that here. Yes. Okay. And um, <clears throat> it's a tall fescue that um, is a ruminant and has a ruminant-friendly endophyte in it. So a lot of tall fescues have an endophyte in it that could make ruminants sick or even die. Um, and for a while, there was tall fescue that um, contained no endophyte. Endophyte-free tall fescue seed. And so, um, but that, that tall fescue never did very good because it doesn't have... And then apparently, and this was something I kept... For years, for decades, I heard of this endophyte that's in this... It's like, it's like magic fairy dust that's inside of tall fescue to make tall fescue grow so well. And I'm pretty sure that everywhere around here where we currently see a really tall grass, 
That's, you know, uh, I think that's probably that Max Q stuff. But apparently endophyte is fungus. It's a, but it's like a, an intravenous fungus inside the plant is my understanding. Um, no one's it's between the cell walls. The, the hyphae of the fungus are between the cell walls of the plant. Okay. And mycorrhizal, the ones that he's talking about are, are outside. So like they should have a sheath around the root mostly. Like on the outside of the cell. So then, when we're talking about uh, having pathogens and nematodes attacking the plant, what you're describing is is that um, the plant has done something like shields up, and that it, the shields are made out of fungus. It, it, it does, I guess, act as a physical barrier, but a lot of fungus produce antibiotics within them as as a as a defense, and so that defense also is carrying over to the to the to the plant and antivirals. And some fungus will um, make little snares in the soil that they catch nematodes, and then they actually eat the nematodes because they're made of ice cream. <laughs> um, okay, so we've got endophytes, which grow within the cell walls of the plant cells. Is that correct? Am I saying that correctly? I think between the cell walls of... Between the cell walls. Like between two different cells, there'll be <clears throat> a small piece of fungus within the plant. Okay, it, it kind of resides <laughs> in the alley spaces between the buildings that are the cells. Yeah, yeah. I think Kai wants to add something. Yeah, there's, there's endomycorrhizae that are inside of a plant root. And sometimes those can be in between cell walls, and sometimes I, th- I don't think that this happens as much with vegetables and grasses, but they can actually be inside of a, c- a plant cell. So they send their hyphae in there. But then there's also ectomycorrhizae that are outside of a plant root, and those are mainly arbuscular mycorrhizae that are around tree roots. I believe that there's probably some overlap both ways with endo and ecto mycorrhizae, but that's the general gist. <laughs> so endo calrissian is is cousins with lando calrissian. <laughs> so uh, which grew up on Endor, wasn't that one of the planets? I don't know. But anyway, all right. So no, sorry. <clears throat> But but then that would uh, explain the endophyte. Um, so that would be between the cell walls inside of the tall fescue. What little I can remember is is that this magic fairy dust, the the endophyte, um, makes the tall fescue grow like crazy, so much better than other stuff. But the problem has always been that it was toxic to ruminants. And now we've got a variety that is going to grow like crazy, but it is not toxic to ruminants. And I spent a year tracking down that this is not a GMO thing. This is a naturally occurring thing. Um, Just a fortunate naturally occurring thing. Um, Okay. The next thing I got on here is that there was a corn trial. And um, he was told that if he wants to be sustainable, he has to get rid of all of his chemical fertilizers 
And um, I can't remember what year it was. Was it 2003? I think he was told this, and he did an experiment in 2006. And um, uh, he just couldn't let go of the chemical fertilizers because he was sure that it would kill him. So he had one field where he did half with 100 pounds of 4600, and the other half he did with zero fertilizer. And then the result was that on the half where he used the fertilizer, he had 114.6 bushels per acre. And then where he had zero fertilizer, expectations are that it's going to be pathetic and that it might not even be enough to run the combine. But instead, he got 114.8 bushels per acre. So that's 0.2 more bushels per acre on the half that used zero fertilizer. <laughs> so so basically, the message that came back from this was that um, if you stop salting the earth, you get more yield. And uh, then, of course, now a lot of the times he talked about nitrogen, and he's like, well, all you could do is put legumes. And so there's two things I want to add to that. Because <clears throat> he's like saying, have rich soil life. And we're going to, there's another thing coming up where he measured some stuff that was really profound. And I think it was also with corn. But um, with rich soil life, you don't need to worry about nitrogen. And uh, I think that's what he's trying to say with this, is it's it's about if you stop abusing the soil, you'll get more corn than if you add all the nitrogen that you need, but you're abusing the soil. So um, he was saying, if you want nitrogen, it's simple. You just add legumes. It pulls nitrogen from the air. And there's, you know, tons and tons and tons of nitrogen up in the air that's all free. Why would you ever want to pay for nitrogen fertilizer? Um, so another thing is, is that there's a lot of plants that are nitrogen fixing that are not legumes. So don't limit yourself to just legumes. Uh, the next thing is, is that there's a lot of bacteria that will fix nitrogen onto a plant from the air and they don't need legumes or nitrogen fixing plants. They will give this nitrogen to anybody, provided, of course, that there's ample air exchange, which you're going to get with your black cottage cheese um, or with good soil structure. Um, and so this is becoming a bigger and bigger field right now as there's getting to be more and more research coming out about this bacteria that lives in all the soils that will fix nitrogen for all plants. Um, so, And I do get the impression that it has a lot to do with aged soils. So uh, whereas every time you till, your age starts back at zero. So when we say aged soils, we're talking about stuff that has a lot of mycelium in it, even though this is a bacteria that is fixing the nitrogen. All right. Anything about that corn trial? It was cool. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I, I wrote down a couple of things. He said yields are 40. Oh, his yields are 40% higher than average. And at some point he says that the average in, and when it comes to corn, the average in his county is less than a hundred bushels per acre. And, and he does about 40% higher. Um, and then he said, am I the highest yield in the county? No. Am I the highest profit? Yes. 
And by prophet, he meant dollars, not, you know, like sharing the word of the deity or whatever, you know. Um, I am so high. <laughs> um, a big thing that he kept uh, doing over and over and over again was talking about, um, especially when he'd go into a system and it's like, okay, I, I harvested what I wanted out of this field. Now I'm going to go run the cattle in. The The cattle get 30%. The cattle eat 30%, and then they trample the rest. And that trampling of the rest creates what he calls armor on the soil. And uh, so it's mulch, basically. And he's really emphatic. He doesn't want to ever see any soil. He doesn't want to ever see bare soil. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to, to get this armor on the soil. And then I think another thing is, is he kept saying, oh, and I'm embarrassed to this picture because it's showing bare soil. But he's got so many earthworms. He said something about like he had a one foot by one foot by two inch chunk of soil that he dug up. And I think that had 200 earthworms in it. 60. 60. Okay. Well, you know, my pretend space is better than his real space. <laughs> maybe if he went down, like, maybe if he went down <laughs> six inches, he would have had 200. Okay. All right. I'm, I, like all earthworm and no soil. <laughs> some of those earthworms are babies. The one in my mind, in my the image in my head, some of them are babies. You're, you're counting the eggs too, uh, I suppose. <laughs> Just right after being eggs. <laughs> but sure, I'll count the eggs too. Okay, 60. Did he? He said 60. Okay, we should probably go with what's real as opposed to what's imaginary. <laughs> Okay. Um, now, the one thing I'm thinking, though, is that with all those earthworms, you put your armor on the soil. Hey, baby, an earthworm's got to eat. Know what I mean? Know what I'm saying? Know what, you know what I mean? So I think that a lot of his armor gets sucked up by those greedy, greedy earthworms. Now, there was one point where he's like, okay, take a look at this soil. Everything you see here is all earthworm castings. And you, I could kind of see that. It did look like it was like earthworm castings as far as the eye can see and no gap in between each casting and in fact they were probably kind of caking up on the surface a bit it did look like that's what it would look like if you had a crazy amount of earthworm castings so i think this was he he did show one photo that was like <clears throat> at the end of a season where the earthworms had taken most of that armor off the soil and i think he said something like they changed now, so they have different crops that would be <coughs> growing at different times to cover over that, so there would never be bare soil. But he, he showed a picture with with some that, of that result. Right, and it, and it did seem like the more diversity he had and the number of species growing. So it seems like some of the time it's like, check out, check it out. I I, I grew two species. I grew corn with vetch underneath. And look how much better it did now. And then it's kind of like each time he says, now I'm doing it with 20 species. And it's like it's better and better and better each time. And he's getting more and more of the results that he wants. And so one of them might be that whereas when he would do two or three species, he would still see uh, some bare soil before. But then as he moves into having 20 species, maybe he doesn't see bare soil as much because maybe the the earthworms go up and then some of the stuff that's still there is like the earthworms just aren't into that. And so they leave it, maybe, possibly. I'm just making this shit up. I don't know. I'm speculating. No one wants to validate my speculation. Oh, Sean, you're going to validate my speculations? 
No. Okay. <laughs> well, what he kept getting into was um, a warm season and a cold season, and there was always something growing. Like if there was a cash crop, there was something growing right after. And he kind of talked about over the years he would notice that there was nothing there, and he would he would add something that would be growing after it was harvested at one point. Okay. Um, I think the the next note I have is that uh, um, he said I I kind of paraphrased because I was trying to scribble things down quickly so we could move along two or three species mix for the cover crop so this might not so a lot of it was the cover crop and the primary crop was like oats or the primary crop was sunflowers or the primary crop was uh, uh, the corn corn seemed to be king um, but if he did just two or three species mix for the cover crop, that I wrote down that uh, he said in his words, and this was my word, lame. Um, and, but then if it's seven or more species mixed, and seven being the bare minimum, then that was good. <laughs> um, paraphrasing, can't remember his exact words. He probably... he. Seems like he has a ruler for everything, and he probably had a, some specific numbers. And I just didn't write them down. Twenty was ideal. Twenty seemed to be the magic number, having twenty species. And then he listed in the video, so everybody's got to go watch the video because I decided to not write all that stuff down. Um, but in the video, he had lists of all of his um, species that uh that he was using in these examples and but th- another important thing was is that he had a different recipe for every field so uh <clears throat> i think kai had his hand up first <laughs> so i've seen other gabe brown videos as well and there's a part where he's talking about diversity in this one and he kind of has this field that is left that he just hasn't really touched because it's just really rocky. So it's all a native place. And they brought in scientists and they counted something like 140 different grass species and like 50 different broadleaf species. I think he said it was 140 different species of grasses and forbs and legumes. Well, 140 different grass species growing in this one field that he has. You think it... So in this one... He said 140 different species, which included grasses and forbs and legumes. Now, are you saying that in the other video, he said 140 species of just grasses? No. 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 Okay. So it was 140 species in this one field. But in this other video that I saw by Gabe Brown, he, his son has this idea to eventually get to the point where they're actually seeding 140 or 200 species mixes onto fields and so that they will be kind of mimicking their native grassland. So I thought that was kind of cool. Okay. So it's, but it's 200 species total. Yeah. Total. Okay. Because I'm not sure if like we know of 140 species (laughs) of grasses that could grow in North Dakota. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, whoa, that would be, that would be pretty huge. So one other thing I wanted to point out was that all of his cocktails, his seed cocktails for the warm season, the cold season, and the variety of each of these, um, growing areas that he had set up, 
he always had low growing clovers and low growing perennials and something that was a little bit taller than that and then tall corn and then shrubs in between. So it was the same principle as a food forest, just without the fruit trees. Well, I mean, with the, in the food forest, you're going to have your, you know, layers, at least seven different layers. I mean, and so you're going to, I mean, that was their thing too, is of all the things he did, uh, and he did have some where it was perennial fields, perennial pastures. Um, but, uh, I didn't, I mean, he didn't talk about trees or shrubs. It was all, you know, your, your smaller stuff, all your annuals. And then if it's a perennial, it's always perennial grasses and the like. True. My main point was just that there's things of different heights with different root depths. That's true. That's, that is totally true. And then for things like, uh, oats or corn, then, uh, everything that was, uh, for the, the living mulch, uh, was pretty low growing. So that way when you bring your combine in there, then, cause like with a, with corn, you're probably going to set your header to be about a foot off the ground, maybe eight inches off the ground, uh, to get all those ears. Um, but with oats, you're probably going to set your header to be more than a foot off the ground. I know with wheat, when I did wheat, we were usually at a foot and a half uh, off the ground. So you could grow stuff pretty tall under that. And, and Sep's videos for Sep's grain, which grows to eight and a half feet tall, uh, even then though, the stuff that's underneath seemed to be pretty low growing. And a lot of those species don't like direct sun. They like to have a little bit of shade. So... Fred? It was later on in the video, but he did say that the um, after the oat harvest, the cover crop that was growing underneath would like explode in growth, and then they would later on send um, livestock through that field to make use of that. Right, right. Okay, <clears throat> now this next thing that I've got written down as a note, I think, is one of the most profound things out of the whole video. So... He had, I think it was like six different monocrop fields, and each one was a type of living mulch. And so, but there was, so uh, it sounded like he was part of a group, and this group is having some discussion and debate about the value of polyculture versus just living mulches in general. So they made six plots that were all monocrops of one living mulch. And then there was one where it had all six together. And then there was another one that was all six together, but planted at half the intensity. So um, uh, the results were profound. So in the monocrop ones... Um, they took a, they had pictures and um, the six all looked pretty much dead. Maybe you know, and there was one inch of rain. He pointed out that they're all planted at exactly the same time, and there had been one inch of rain for them all to draw on, and they're all in the same field. So it's everything's pretty much the same, with the one exception of polyculture. So the six monocultures are all dead, and the polyculture is alive and thriving. And they came back with very exact numbers on, um, we're thinking it's not the numbers of how much crop there was per patch, but how much organic matter they, they pulled out. 
and um, the polyculture organic matter was far larger than any of the monocrops. Um, but the fascinating thing was is that they got a little bit more organic matter out of the one that they seeded at half the density. Um, I don't think there's too much to be read into that, but maybe a little. But I think the, the profound thing is is the polyculture. Now, and then one of the things he points out is, is that it's broadly believed that these plants will compete with each other for water and nutrients. But what we're now seeing is that they're actually helping each other. And and so now it's, I mean, they, it was a very solid canopy. It was, you know, one big solid gob of lush. There was a picture of it. And you can look at the pictures of the other ones. And they all looked like one great big solid gob of death. Um, and you were looking at definitely bare soil on the other ones. But with all six of them together, very lush. It, it was it was a it would be a virtual you know uh, one foot tall jungle <laughs> down there um, <clears throat> so I, I don't know just this whole video is worth just seeing these images those were very profound um, do, oh he said uh, so people worry about the plants competing with each other for water and he said but that is not how nature works. So he's he's saying that basically he's modeling everything. He, keeps, he, he repeated this over and over again. We're just using what nature does. We're just doing what nature is doing, um, which is, you know, the polyculture. And he, he mentioned several times how there is no monocrop in nature. And I, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. I've seen, because, you know, knapweed is a great example. Cedar trees are an example of uh, a lot of times where there's a lot of cedar trees growing, it'll be a monocrop of cedar. Generally, other things do not grow underneath a cedar tree. Um, the knapweed does a really good job of poisoning everything else out. So you can see fields easily around Montana that are just, you know, the right time of year, one great big gob of beautiful purple blossoms. Um, and when you get up close, there's nothing else there. With the knapweed that's growing here and on the lab, like I haven't seen any monocrops of it. There's always something else growing underneath. Even when all you see is a big purple field, when you get close, there's lots of other stuff growing there. Well, and then it's like the story of there's always a bigger fish. And so there's the knapweed out there. <laughs> I'm poisoning all these other little fuckers. And so, you know, there's this, and then, and then, you hear, oh, ho, 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 I'm poisoning that fucking knapweed. That would be the Douglas fir tree. So you'll notice that under Douglas fir tree, there's usually not much knapweed because the Douglas fir tree is totally kicking ass on the knapweed. It's like, oh, you think you can fuck with me? It's like you are a pipsqueak. <laughs> Let's, I'll, I'm going to teach you how to fuck with somebody. <laughs> So um, uh, we've got, I mean, you know, we look up on this hill and it's like, that, I mean, there are clearly species that are growing with the conifers here. But I think that the conifers, while being toxic and killing off a lot of different species, um, there are some species that can tolerate that. But with knapweed, um, not much can tolerate it, except unless, of course, you can grow a root system that's you know, goes deeper and bigger than anything the knapweed can dream of. I have a friend in Missoula who works for a company in the summer that collects the bugs. I'm not sure what they are. There's two specifically that 
like knapweed, yeah. and they can they collect them for biocontrol and like sell them to people instead of using pesticides. I think we've bought some of those bugs oh, in the past. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, in fact, I think I, I might know your friend, and by know him, I'm by know I mean I've exchanged emails with him, and for a while I was going to go video him doing that, and he kind of talked about it like it's a bizarre business. It's so ridiculously simple. You just go out to where there's napweed, you find the bugs, you put them in a bucket, and people will pay 200 bucks for a little tiny box. But you got to pick all the other ones out. Yes. Oh. Anyways. Well, it's 200 um, bucks for a tiny, tiny box. Yeah. You might be making something like, I don't know, $600 an hour. Yeah. That's pretty decent. <laughs> for picking some bugs. I, suddenly, bio, suddenly that biology degree pays. I've seen both of those beetles here. There's one that eats the roots as a grub and one that eats the, the seed head. So you'll find them on the flower. I think um, <clears throat> I think there's actually six different kinds of bugs that find napweed to be delicious, and at least one of them is a weevil. That's um, what it was. One of them was a weevil that she was catching. Okay, okay, but I mean, um, so we might have two of the six here now, and I I do think that you know we have a lot of napweed, but I mean it comes back to the thing I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast is, and in fact. This was something that I mentioned to Mark Vandermeer when he was here because he saw we – were, we were walking over by where the one wood gate is now that stands open all the time. And um, there was a bunch of napweed there. And he says, what are you going to do with the napweed? And, and um, I said, wherever I see napweed, that's where I want to plant a permi because whoever sits here and starts gardening, that napweed – isn't going to be there very long. And and I kind of feel like wherever the napweed's the worst is the best place to put somebody, and they'll start gardening. If nothing else, seeing so much napweed to me is really encouraging because that means they haven't, like, totally plastered the place with a bunch of persistent herbicides. So go napweed. I mean, I, I can deal with napweed. I can't deal with persistent herbicides. So, um, and plus, you know, I love the idea that the bugs have found it and they're moving in and they're setting up a home and they're munching away. And if we really wanted to, we could try to get all six to move in and stuff. But we did bring in some bugs at one point, probably from your friend. And um, uh, I, maybe that's them or maybe it's the ones that were already here. Who knows? I, I kind of feel like because the napweed came from Russia and over there, they hardly ever see the plant anymore. And it's believed it's because of all the things that think knapweed is just delicious. And um, it's just taken a while for those to show up here. In, in a way, it's a big part of permaculture stuff because, um, like, with this berm that's right outside this window, um, it's it's been, I mean, parts of it were built, I'm trying to think, like, in the fall of... 2014, um, and then some stuff was planted on it, and then the turkeys ate it all. And then we finished building a, a fence around some of it in like around June, May and June of uh, 2015. And then um, a lot of our seeds didn't take because June didn't provide the water it normally is supposed to provide. So for the things that did take, suddenly we had chipmunks galore, just zillions of chipmunks. 
and then um, and then they all disappeared, and that's when we found that stoat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it had a bullet hole through it, so the chipmunk mafia probably got to it. But um, then there were rabbits. So this spring, as as all the crocuses were trying to come up, the, the rabbits would come and just wipe them all out. And then we saw like a couple neighbor cats show up, and then the rabbits seemed to have disappeared. And now things are growing again. And so it's kind of like um, if you just wait, the predators will show up, just like with the napweed. If you just wait, the predators will show up. Well, this year we noticed there was a lot of spit bugs on the napweed. So that's another another wow. predator. Really? Go spit bugs. Go spit bugs. Spit bugs, bugs don't eat the napweed. They just how they just home there. Oh man, Fred. I think that I mean most of the plants that spit bugs are on, they're they are sucking juices out of the out of the plant. Oh, it's totally on now. Sarah? I believe you, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't eat the plant. They're not like, physically eating it. Yeah. The whole plant's still there. Oh. But they're disrupting it somehow yeah. with their spit. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sarah totally caved on that one. <laughs> this podcast is continued in part two.